Cherokee Bill was part black, part white, part Native American, and 100% outlaw. The young bandit wouldn't live past the tender age of 20, but still found time to commit a litany of violent crimes, robbing everything from trains to general stores and even a bank, and taking at least seven lives in the process, possibly more. As Bill stood on the gallows with the hangman's noose around his neck, he was asked if he had any final words. His reply, I came here to die, not make a speech. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Believe it or not, Cherokee Bill was not the man's given name. Shocker, I know. It was Crawford, Crawford Goldsby, and he was born on February 8th, 1876 at Fort Concho, Texas. By the way, nobody knows for sure when Crawford earned the nickname Cherokee Bill, so I will be interchangeably referring to him as Crawford, Goldsby, and Bill throughout this episode, and sometimes just plain old Cherokee for short. Now, Crawford was the son of a soldier, George Goldsby, and his wife Ellen, both of whom were of mixed heritage. You may find sources claiming that George was half Lakota and part Mexican, but this is not the case. Truth is, George's daddy was a white plantation owner out of Selma, Alabama by the name of Thornton Goldsby. And his mama was one of Thornton's slaves, a lady by the name of Hester King. And while I was unable to determine whether or not George was ever a slave himself, we do know that he was born in 1843, and when the war between the states broke out, he was employed as a hired servant for the Confederate Army, Company D of the 8th Alabama Infantry. A few days after the Battle of Gettysburg, George defected and joined the Union Army. Enlisting as a quartermaster and serving with distinction in the 21st Pennsylvania Cavalry for the remainder of the war. Now this is interesting, especially considering that the 21st was not a segregated unit. Believe it or not, George was able to successfully pass himself off as a white man. And after seeing a photograph of him holding a baby Cherokee Bill, I can understand why. Assuming that the picture in question does truly depict George Goldsby, then yeah, he was very light-skinned and he could definitely pass. And as you'll soon hear, he would continue to do so in the years to come. Not just yet, though. He would return to Sweet Home, Alabama, following the war. But once word got out that he fought for the Yankees, there was talk of stringing him up, so George didn't stick around. Can't blame him there. He headed out west, and in the fall of 1867, would once again enlist in the U.S. Army, and begin working up through the ranks of the all-black 10th Cavalry, a.k.a. the Buffalo Soldiers. Initially stationed out of Fort Sill, Indian Territory, Goldsby would, in time, be transferred to Fort Concho, down Texas Way. Details are sparse, but it's likely George participated in engagements with the Comanche and Kiowa during this period. And round about 1874, a then 31-year-old George Goldsby met and married the future Cherokee Bill's mama, 15-year-old Ellen Beck. Now Ellen, as I mentioned earlier, was also multiracial, but was known in them days as a Cherokee freedman. We've all heard about the Trail of Tears, right? About how the Cherokee and other so-called civilized tribes were forcibly removed from the lands of their ancestors and made to relocate to present-day Oklahoma. They were called civilized for a reason. The Cherokee, along with the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creeks, and Seminoles, had, even before the Indian Removal Act, largely assimilated into white Southern culture. Most of them were farmers, they were educated, hell, the Cherokee had their own written language, and many had converted to Christianity. The dirty little secret that folks don't much like to acknowledge is that they were also slave owners. At least some of them were. And when these people were forced to relocate to Indian territory, they brought their slaves along with them. 
It's estimated that by the year 1861, there were around 4,000 enslaved black people living among the Cherokee, Ellen Beck and her parents among them. As such, she was part African-American, part Cherokee, and part white. Now, she and George would have four children that I'm aware of. And by all accounts, George Goldsby was one hell of a soldier, as he would attain the rank of first sergeant, which, if I'm not mistaken, is just one rung below sergeant major. Certainly an accomplishment. By the way, Fort Concho, where Cherokee Bill was born, was about 200 miles northwest of San Antonio. And at that time, still very much a frontier outpost. What's more, the soldiers who were stationed there, like First Sergeant Goldsby, had the somewhat dubious honor of protecting people that didn't care too much for them, mostly based on the color of their skin. This was something I touched on during the Frank Canton series, and it was an undeniable point of friction out west. These Buffalo soldiers had a tough job, one that put them in harm's way on a regular basis, and due to race relations just not being all that hunky-dory back in the 1870s, it was by and large a thankless job, and harassment was a commonplace occurrence. If you're getting ready to fire off an email telling me about how the Buffalo soldiers weren't worth a damn, or that I'm somehow being woke because I acknowledge the fact that racism existed in the 19th century, save it. It is a fact. Black soldiers were often treated poorly by the very people they were tasked with protecting. This is not some sort of controversial sweeping remark or a judgment against your great-grandma. I'm not making a political point. Sometimes people just don't get along. Sometimes people don't get along because of something as silly as the color of their skin. It happens, even nowadays. So please, save your whataboutisms for somebody else. And I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about that other guy. As far as the men of Fort Concho were concerned, all of this tension finally came to a head in neighboring San Angelo in 1878, when some rowdy cowpokes ripped the chevrons off a black trooper's uniform. An act that I think we can all agree is highly disrespectful. After all, that man earned those stripes. For better or for worse, the insulted sergeant headed back to the fort and soon returned with reinforcements, including First Sergeant George Goldsby. And you better believe they was armed to the teeth. Gunplay ensued that saw several wounded and at least one white cowboy killed along with one dead buffalo soldier. If you've ever seen the painting by famed Western artist Frederick Remington titled How the Worm Turns, that's a depiction of this very gunfight there at San Angelo. Pretty cool painting, by the way. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes, but Remington was just out of this world talented. Shortly after this fight, a few Texas Rangers paid Fort Concho a visit, looking to arrest Goldsby, but his commander, Colonel Benjamin Grierson, sent him packing, saying that they didn't have no damn authority at a by-god U.S. military installation. Still, though, Goldsby was understandably nervous. I reckon George didn't trust the Army to protect him forever, and respected NCO or not, when or if Sergeant Goldsby was handed over to the law, it likely weren't going to end well. So he got out while the getting was still good going AWOL and fleeing up into Indian territory, leaving Ellen and the children behind in the process, including our very own Cherokee Bill, who was not yet two years of age. Now, Ellen and the kiddos would also head up to the territory and meet up with George around Fort Gibson, but it would be a short-lived reunion. The former sergeant stuck around for a few weeks, and then he left again. Since Ellen was the official laundress of the 10th Cav, and now a single mother trying to feed several children, she traveled with the soldiers wherever they went. Fort Concho to Fort Davis, Fort Grant, even Fort Apache over in Arizona. And while she was on the road, the children were left in the care of an older black lady by the name of Amanda Foster, known to all as Auntie Amanda. And it would be there at Fort Gibson in the Cherokee Nation with Auntie Amanda that young Crawford Goldsby would spend the next few years. 
at least until around the age of seven when he went to go get him an education. First in Kansas and then all the way up north to Pennsylvania where he attended the infamous Carlisle School for Indians. Maybe. And this is kind of a big maybe. Despite what you may have read, despite what I have read, turns out there is no documentable evidence showing that Bill ever attended the Carlisle School. And I'm not even sure where this rumor started. His daddy George, upon settling down in Eureka Springs and finding steady employment, sent for Bill and his siblings. By the way, there in Kansas, George Goldsby was once again passing himself off as a white man. And for good reason. He was married to a white lady. This is where the story of him being part Lakota and part Mexican came into play. This is a narrative that he himself invented so as not to cause issues in a day and age where a black man and a white woman living together was 100% taboo and just flat out illegal in many areas. According to Amanda Foster in a 1912 interview with the pension board over in Muskogee, she stated that everyone, quote, regarded George as a white man, end quote. As far as Cherokee Bill's education goes, he would attend some type of school there in Kansas, but there's no record of it being an Indian school, or of there even being an Indian school in that area. Whether or not it was segregated, I do not know, but he would ultimately return to the Cherokee Nation and his mother a few years later at the age of 12. Ellen had remarried to another former soldier by the name of William Lynch, and well, let's just say Bill and his stepdaddy did not get along. Where it has it, the Cherokee told his mother that he wasn't going to call him dad ever, not even if there's a fire. And he followed that up by stating, quote, he better not get in my face because I'll drop that motherfucker, end quote. And no, sorry, that's uh, actually a line from Step Brothers. I love that movie. The part about Crawford and Mr. Lynch not getting along was absolutely true, though. By all accounts, young Bill was lashing out quite a bit at this time. And over the next few years, his anti-authoritarian streak would only continue to blossom. So much so that by 1891, a just 15-year-old Bill went to live with his older sister Georgia and her family over in Nawada, also in the Cherokee Nation about 50 miles northwest of present-day Tulsa. And surprise, surprise, Crawford didn't get along with his brother-in-law either, a guy by the name of Mose Brown. Now once again, this is where we break with the common narrative. You'll find more than a few sources claiming that Cherokee Bill would kill his brother-in-law around this period either during an argument over pigs or because he caught the man beating on his sister. Hell, you'll even find some sources stating that Bill killed his first man even earlier, at the age of 12. None of this is true. While Crawford would, in the future, absolutely kill Mr. Brown, it wasn't when he was 15. Goldsby only lived with Mose in Georgia for a little while before returning to Fort Gibson and moving in with a Cherokee freedman with a really awesome and totally not a male stripper name of Bud Buffington. Bill also took to spend time in the big city of Catoosa. Now, Catoosa was a cow town with a pretty rough reputation in them days, and chock full of plenty of bad influences for a rudderless young man like Crawford Goldsby. Most accounts do seem to agree that it was at this time that Bill took to enjoying liquor and hanging out with the quote-unquote wrong crowd. Other young hoodlums around his age with names like the Verdigris Kid, Chicken Lucas, Buck Snyder, and Skeeter Baldwin, along with the nefarious Cook brothers Jim and Bill. Skeeter Baldwin. How about that for a name? And I actually knew a Skeeter long time ago. Friend of my older brother. And Skeeter had this bad habit of coming over to our house and climbing in through my brother's window when nobody was at home and playing with his toys. One day my dad decides to have a little fun so he grabs the shotgun and goes running into my brother's room, yelling and hollering. And there goes Skeeter flying through the window. He never did sneak in no more after that. And that's what I think about when I hear the name Skeeter. Now, a favorite pastime for Crawford and these young delinquents was riding to the outskirts of town to practice with their guns. 
They'd place a target on a tree and fire at it while riding at full gallop. Per eyewitness reports, Bill was a dead shot and able to hit a squirrel in the eye with his Winchester as far as he could see. Now, I don't know about all that, but I have no doubt that Bill was more than proficient. You can't tell from the existing photos of the young man, but Crawford was a flashy dresser, favoring large white brim hats, red bandanas, Mexican jingle bob spurs, and fancy studded chaps. Chaps. Do you know that's how you pronounce it? It ain't chaps. It's chaps. Now, don't look at me like that. I don't make the rules. Chaps. That said, Goldsby was earning his keep honest-like, doing everything from sweeping out shops for room and board and even working as a legit cowboy on nearby ranches. One employer remembered Bill during this time as being a, quote, quiet, good-natured, hard-working boy, well-liked by all who knew him, end quote. Unfortunately, that would all change come the spring 1894, when a then-18-year-old Crawford Goldsby shot a Cherokee freedman by the name of Jake Lewis. Apparently, they was all attending a dance over at Fort Gibson when Lewis attacked Bill's younger brother, Clarence. And when Bill stepped in to put a stop to it, Lewis and his buddies all ganged up on him and gave him a hellacious beating. So the next day, Cherokee hid out in a barn, and as soon as Jake Lewis stepped inside, he shot him at least twice before fleeing. And I say at least twice because I did find another account that said it was four times. Either way, Lewis would survive these wounds, a fact that was initially unknown to Bill. Far as he was concerned, he was now wanted for murder. So he lit out for the Creek Nation where he joined up with his buddies Jim and Bill Cook and their gang, including the aforementioned Vertigris Kid and some of them other ne'er-do-wells from over in Catoosa. By the way, the Cook brothers were also part Cherokee. That meant that they, along with Bill, were eligible for payments after the government bought an area from the Cherokee Nation known as the Cherokee Outlet. For compensation, each tribal member was supposed to have received a check for around $265. Doesn't sound like much, but keep in mind that adjusted for inflation, that's like 9000 bucks nowadays. So as you can imagine, these youngsters were dying to get their hands on a piece of that pie. And what's more, it was completely legal. Outlaws or not, this was their money. All they had to do was head on over to Tahlequah and collect. Be that as it may, when you're wanted for attempted murder like Cherokee Bill, or a wide assortment of other crimes like the Cooks were, you can't just be riding into town all willy-nilly like. That being the case, they recruited a local lady named Effie Crittenton to go pick up the money on their behalf. Only problem was her ex-old man, a Cherokee policeman by the name of Dick Crittenton, got wind of these developments and it weren't long before a posse came looking to arrest Bill and the others. Ah, but these desperados weren't planning on going down without a fight. Bill spotted the posse as they approached and rushed inside to warn the gang. And as soon as the lawmen rode up, they was ready. In the short yet intense battle that followed, a Cherokee deputy by the name of Sequoia Houston lost his life, likely from around from Cherokee's Winchester, and the just 15-year-old Jim Cook caught several pieces of buckshot. The posse lost steam and left to go get reinforcements, allowing Bill and his compadres to skedaddle and go hunt up a sawbones to see to Jim's wounds. They located a doctor and held him in gunpoint as he got to doctoring, but it weren't long before here comes the posse again. More gunfire was exchanged, and while Goldsby and Bill Cook were able to escape, they had to leave the wounded Jim behind. He'd survive the lead poisoning, but be sent to prison where he'd escape in 1896. A few years later, in the year 1900, Jim got into an argument over a stolen cow and was once again shot, this time several times in the back. And this time, he would not survive. He was 22 years old. That gunfight over at Effie's place was in mid-June 1894. And what followed can best be described as one hell of a prolific crime spree. 
one that would see nearly every member of the Cook gang, including Cherokee Bill, dead and buried. Worth mentioning that the Cook gang did not discriminate when it came to race. These boys was like the damn United Nations for outlaws. You had white dudes, black dudes, American Indians, and every sort of mix in between. They also didn't differentiate when it came to their victims. These were, without a doubt, equal opportunity criminals, and you better believe they were just getting started. A few days following the capture of Jim Cook and the gunfight with that posse, Bill and gang member Jim French rode into the town of Watumka over in the Creek Nation and robbed a mercantile store. By the way, this is not the same Jim French who rode with Billy Bonnie down in New Mexico, although the two are sometimes mistaken for one another. Three days later, and 130 miles to the north, Bill and fellow banditti Henry Munson held up a rail agent over in Nevada, an action that led to Crawford taking yet another life. The railroad agent, feller named Dick Richards, made the fatal mistake of going for his gun, and Bill put his lights out with a bullet straight to the throat. Now, to Mr. Richards' credit, there was a mark on his gun hand indicating that he was fast enough to at least get a bead on Cherokee, but just a tad too slow on squeezing that trigger. In the days that followed, someone robbed the stage out of Fort Gibson, and then an unfortunate soul from down near Muldrow was killed and robbed of a substantial amount of money. Nobody knows for sure who committed either of these two crimes, but it was assumed it was the Cook Gang. These young men were rapidly making a name for themselves, and, as tends to be the case, many a nefarious deed was placed at their feet, guilty or not. That said, there was plenty they were for sure guilty of. For instance, we know that on July 18th, the boys, Cherokee Bill included, robbed a choo-choo train up in Red Fork. They laid in wait at the station, and when the train came a-rolling in, they hopped on board, guns drawn. All total, they'd make off with $15, a jug of whiskey, and a box of cigars or what I used to once upon a time call a damn good night. But $15 only goes so far, right? And besides, the real money's in the banks. Or at least you would think so. Turns out that didn't prove all that lucrative either, as Bill and the crew discovered on the morning of July 30th, 1894. They rode into the town of Chandler 5D around 10 a.m. and made their way to an alley behind the bank. Leaving one or two men on the boardwalk, they stepped inside and jerked iron, commanding the employees to throw their hands up. Two female customers panicked, as they're wont to do, and ran out the back door, passing the other bandits as they did so. Got to imagine this is a nerve-wracking situation for all involved, even the outlaws. They're all keyed up, knowing they only have a short amount of time before the shit hits the fan. People are screaming, adrenaline is pumping, everybody's on edge. It's a real recipe for disaster. And considering these outlaws were as young as they were, a disaster was all but inevitable. Not looking to waste any more time, they dragged one of the tellers over to the safe and ordered him to open it up, an action that he explained was impossible due to it having one of them fancy time locks. As all this is happening, a barber across the street noticed the commotion and yelled out an alarm, confusing Cherokee and his buddies for the more notorious Dalton gang in the process. He starts a hollering, The Daltons are robbing the bank! The Daltons are robbing the bank! As Bill steps out onto the boardwalk and shouts for the man to shut the hell up. The concerned citizen keeps yelling, so Bill shoulders his rifle, takes aim, and at a distance of about 200 yards, plugs him straight through the forehead. And of course, all hell then breaks loose. Another civilian, a Mr. Warren, was shot at several times as he made his way to his home, but once inside, he began returning fire from his kitchen window, dropping at least one of the outlaw's horses. Other townsfolk soon joined in, pumping round after round into the bank, which resulted in the gang spilling out and making for their mounts under a hell of fire. At this point, the local sheriff had been roused, and he followed in close pursuit with a small posse, but when Bill and them others hit a grove of timber just outside of town, they scattered. 
There was a short little 15-minute gunfight, but that was about it. As the noise died down and the lawmen cautiously approached, all they found was one man, Elmer Lucas. He had taken a bullet through both thighs and was ready to call it quits. As for the others, they was gone, disappearing into the depths of Indian territory once more, leaving a widow and two fatherless children in their wake. And all they had to show for it was a measly $300 in the bank president's pocket watch. A few days later, a famous tracker set out in pursuit of the boys, a guy by the name of Tiger Jack. A lot of cool names on this episode, man. One of the few redeeming qualities of Oklahoma, to be honest. They really knew how to give people some proper Old West nicknames. Now, Tiger Jack had worked for quite a few deputy U.S. Marshals in the past, including Heck Thomas, to hunt down desperados. He was a member of the Yuchi tribe, a people removed to the territory in the 1830s with their allies, the Creek. And while Tiger Jack did ultimately fail to locate the gang, other members of the Yuchi tribe would not. They, along with the Creek Nation Light Horse Police, caught up with the boys in early August 1894 just outside the town of Sepulpa. They was hiding out at Henry Munson's uncle's place and just standing out in the open one morning as the posse came thundering in, a dozen strong and daggers drawn. And by daggers, I mean firearms, which, uh, they were shooting. I don't know why I felt like trying to get fancy just then. Daggers. In the exchange that followed, the aforementioned Henry Munson and Cook gang member Lon Gordon were killed and one Indian policeman wounded as Bill and the others fought their way out. I want you to keep in mind that Cherokee Bill is still just 18 years old at this time, and it's only been a few months since he shot Jake Lewis back there in Fort Gibson. So all this activity we've been discussing, the train robbery, them holding up that bank, the numerous gunfights and close calls and killings, this has all occurred in a very short period. His boys were wild as hell. They weren't pulling a score and then laying low for a while. They were constantly at it from one job to another. And by the looks of it, not giving too much thought about how it was all going to end. That said, things did quiet down for a bit. For a little over a month following the deaths of Munson and Gordon, we don't really know what Bill and the others were up to. Not until September 14th when they popped back up in the town of Okmulgee, robbing a store of several hundred dollars. Okmulgee. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I had to stop several times doing research on this episode in order to figure out how to say the names of all these damn towns up there in Oklahoma. I learned my lesson from back on the Ned Christie episode after I repeatedly butchered the pronunciation of Tahlequah. And to be honest, I'm still not sure I'm getting it right. Tahlequah. Don't play with your Tahlequah. Nearly three weeks later, the gang would strike again, robbing a train depot at Wagoner, making off with another $300 and shooting their guns off as they galloped out of town, scaring the shit out of everybody. And the next day, they took $120 off a Cherokee man on his way to Fort Gibson before splitting up. Bill Cook and a few others went and robbed an entire work crew of coal miners, just honest, hard-working men, as Cherokee Bill and his bunch robbed yet another train depot in the town of Shadow. Eleven days later, on October 20th, 1894, a Missouri Pacific Express train was held up just five miles south of Wagoner. And although the Cook gang was blamed, turns out this particular robbery was orchestrated by former gang member Bus Lucky. And if you're an aspiring mumble rapper looking for a good stage name, you can do a hell of a lot worse than Bus Lucky, let me tell you. Things had gotten so bad there in the territory that Indian agent Do Wisdom sent the following wire to the Office of Indian Affairs in D.C. My police force is not equal to the emergency. And Marshal Crump at Fort Smith writes that he has not the money to keep marshals in the field for a campaign. Affairs here are in desperate condition. Business is suspended. The people generally intimidated and private individuals robbed every day and night. 
The state of siege must be broken and something done to save life and property. Now, this call of distress got attention. The U.S. Attorney General pledged the government's full cooperation and authorized the posting of rewards for the capture of any or all of the Cook gang, as did the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. This, of course, just meant more heat for Cherokee Bill, but he weren't nowhere near done with his reign of terror. Indeed, by late October, he branched off from Bill Cook and formed his own gang. They hit the little town of Watova on October 22nd, robbing two stores in the post office, and in the days that followed, they did the same over in Talala, just a few miles away. Most of the town was gone, attending a nearby baseball game, so the boys simply walked from one business to the next, stealing everything that weren't nailed down. Things wouldn't be so easy over in Lenapal, however. Although the gang was able to steal a cool $600 from a general store, they took a little too long in doing so. A crowd began milling about the store, so the Verdigris kid fired off a few warning shots, both to keep the mob at a safe distance and as a way to tell his boys inside to stop taking their damn sweet time and hurry up. Well, as you may have guessed, this gunfire draws even more attention. Poor bastard by the name of Ernest Melton was working in a nearby restaurant parallel to the general store, hanging up wallpaper. He hears the commotion and peeks his head out the window and has the misfortune to make an eye contact with our very own Cherokee Bill. So what's Bill do? Well, he shouldered that rifle of his and splattered Melton's brains all over that brand new wallpaper. The boys left town without further incident, but this did cause the federal court over at Fort Smith to up the reward on Bill. I was not able to find out what it had been prior to Melton's murder, but afterwards it was increased to $1,300, or around 45000 in today's money. Consequently, Cherokee and them others were now being targeted by numerous individuals, two of whom were a pair of deputy U.S. Marshals working out of Sepulpa by the names of Bill Smith and George Lawson. They started working on a former associate of the Verdigris kid, Charles Patton, and offered to split the reward if he assisted in the gang's apprehension. As expected, Patton was able to locate the boys and even hung out with them for a few days before returning to the deputies with valuable intel. According to Patton, Bill had plans to meet with his girlfriend, Maggie Glass, over near Talala at the home of gang sympathizer Frank Daniels. On the day in question, November 16, 1894, a posse headed by legendary Heck Thomas arrived at Daniels' place, ordering him and his family down into the storm shelter as an ambush was prepared. Not long after everyone was in place, Bill and the gang rode up completely unaware of the danger. And had it not been for a trigger-happy deputy, there's a very good chance this would have been the end of the line for old Cherokee Bill. As it were, one of the posse men got a little too excited and opened up the dance before the outlaws were close enough, his round just striking Bill's horse, spilling the young bandit to the ground. According to at least one eyewitness, Cherokee then sprang to his feet and put that Winchester to work, just standing out in the open, firing round after round toward the lawmen. The Verdigris kid, whose real name, by the way, was Sam McWilliams, had his horse shot out from under him as well. And as soon as he hit the dirt, he got up and ran to Cherokee's side. The pair were able to lay down enough of a withering fire to retreat into a stand of timber, and the posse had the good sense not to try to go in there after him. And boy, oh boy, was Heck Thomas pissed. He later told a paper out of Fort Smith, quote, Just to think, after I'd worked for two weeks and spent upwards of $200 of my own money to lose it all because they could not wait. I told them not to fire, but they did and spoiled the game, end quote. Now a desperately wanted man, Cherokee Bill, took a short break, and I reckon he got to feeling a little homesick as he would pin a letter to his sister Georgia, asking her to come pay him a visit. This is the same sister that Bill lived with for a spell over in Nawada. And as you may recall, Bill and his brother-in-law, Mose Brown, absolutely did not get along. 
As such, Georgia pleaded with her husband to stay at home, but he followed anyway. Once they got close to where Bill was, she once again warned Mose, saying, quote, You know that you always mistreated Crawford and was the cause of him leaving home once. And he told you that he would kill you someday if you didn't leave him alone. And you had best not go molest him again. End quote. Undaunted, Mose Brown continued with his wife and, sure as shit, old Cherokee wasn't very happy about it. He asked Mose just what in the hell he thought he was doing there, and in the altercation that followed, Bill shucked iron and shot his brother-in-law dead. Like I said toward the beginning of the episode, you will often find sources claiming that this occurred much earlier, back when Bill was 15, and this was the reason he originally left his sister's home. Or you'll even read that Bill heard that Mose was abusing Georgia, so he hunted him down and then killed him. The version I just recounted, however, comes straight from Bill's niece, Maud Brown, the daughter of Georgia and Moses Brown. In December 1894, Cherokee Bill, Jim French, and another unknown man held up the train depot in Nawada. A few weeks later, Bill returned alone and robbed the same damn train station. Again. I think it's safe to say that, young though he was, Crawford Goldsby certainly was not lacking when it came to nerves. Interesting story I found, uh, one that has not been verified, by the way, so take it with a grain of salt, and it comes from one of these depot agents that Bill robbed. According to the railroad man, there was some old boy that was jealous over the affection that Cherokee was receiving from his gal pal, Maggie Glass. So he started bragging about how he aimed to gun Bill down should the two ever meet. Well, as is the case with many blowhards, he changed his tune real quick as soon as he and Goldsby came face to face. Stopped making all that noise as if he was some sort of mean little ass kicker. Not only did Cherokee Bill disarm the man, but he also forced him to get down on his stomach and start eating grass. I'm not kidding. The would-be tough was stuffing grass into his face as fast as he could as Bill left him with a warning. If I ever hear about you carrying a gun again, I'll kill you. Legend states that this guy never again went healed for the rest of his life. Now speaking of Maggie Glass, unbeknownst to her, she was about to become a pawn used in the capture of her beloved. And the man doing the using was her own uncle, a Cherokee freedman by the name of Ike Rogers. Ike was a pretty fascinating guy in his own rights. Born in the Cherokee Nation as a slave, likely around the year 1844, at some point Rogers either escaped or obtained his freedom and enlisted with the 1st Kansas Volunteer Infantry Regiment. He mustered out of the service in Arkansas in October of 1865, moved back to the nation, and was an on-again, off-again deputy U.S. Marshal for Judge Parker. I did find some indication that Ike worked with Bass Reeves from time to time, but I was not able to verify this. If you're really interested in learning more about Ike, one of his ancestors, Nika Smith, has done a lot of research not only on him, but the Cherokee freedmen in general. I'll put a link in the show notes, but you can find several blog posts by Nika at whoisnikasmith.com. It's pretty good resources there. Now that said, despite being a sometimes lawman, Ike Rogers was also on somewhat friendly terms with Cherokee Bill. Story goes that Maggie Glass's parents didn't approve of Bill, so when the two wanted to hook up, they sometimes did so over at Ike's place. There's also speculation that sometimes Rogers would aid Goldsby in his crimes. Not sure if this holds water, and I don't know if they were the best of buddies or anything like that. What's for certain is that they absolutely knew each other, that Rogers was Maggie's uncle, and despite Ike's time as a deputy, Bill did at least somewhat trust the man. At least as much as an outlaw like him could afford to trust anybody. And it is this trust that would be Cherokee Bill's ultimate undoing. That and his own confidence. And you'll understand what I mean by that very shortly. Now, whether Rogers was persuaded to turn Benedict Arnold on his own volition or not is up for debate. Some folks speculate that the law used Ike's possible criminal activities as a way to induce him to help capture Bill. 
you know, help us out and we'll pretend like we don't know what you've been up to. Others think Rogers was simply swayed by all that reward money. Whichever way it shook out, we do know that Ike was given a new commission as a deputy U.S. Marshal on January 10th, 1895. The plan was simple. Rogers would invite both Cherokee Bill and Maggie over to his place to celebrate Maggie's 17th birthday. Once Goldsby let his guard down, Ike would pounce, take the young bandit into custody, and then turn him over to those two deputies I mentioned earlier, Bill Smith and George Lawson, who were waiting over in Nawada with bated breath. To assist in the capture, Ike enlisted his neighbor and former federal posseman, Clint Scales. Clint was to stake out the cabin, wait for Bill to arrive, and then drop by all nonchalant and spend the night. A tactic I have employed on women in the past with varying results. In this case, though, it worked out pretty much as planned. Cherokee Bill arrived at Ike Rogers' cabin shortly after dark on the night of January 29th, 1895. And a couple hours later, all smooth-like, here comes Mr. Scales. Unfortunately, though, for him and Rogers, Bill wasn't letting his guard down. They may have had the much younger man outnumbered two to one, but it soon became abundantly clear that Goldsby wasn't just going to deliver himself up on a silver platter. Hell, he wouldn't even let go of that rifle at the dinner table, just sat there eating with it resting on his lap. And when Ike tried to offer Bill some whiskey laced with morphine, he wisely refused. I think we can safely say that Cherokee knew something was amiss. Hell, even Maggie picked up on it and, when the two were alone for a moment, begged for Bill to leave. A supplication that he refused. Said he was going to let Ike make the first move and then show him how long it took to kill a man. After dinner, the fellas played cards till around 4am and finally called it a night. As Bill laid down, he did so with the Winchester gripped firmly in his hands. And throughout the rest of the night, if one of the other men so much as moved in their bedding, Cherokee would instantly sit up, rifle at the ready. The sleepless night turned into day, and everyone gathered to have breakfast as Ike sent the birthday girl Maggie over to a neighbor's place to buy a couple of chickens. It was now or never, I reckon, and it weren't long before Bill finally let his guard down, just for a split second. The three was all sitting in front of the fireplace, he and Ike and Clint Scales, when Cherokee rolled himself a smoke. Searching in his pockets for a match, he came up empty-handed, so he leaned in close to the fireplace looking for an ember. Big mistake. Soon as Bill had his head turned, Ike Rogers grabbed a fire poker up off the ground and sent it crashing down upon the young outlaw's head. According to Ike, he swung with enough force to kill an ordinary man, but I reckon Cherokee Bill wasn't exactly ordinary. Although momentarily down, he sure as hell wasn't out. Both Rogers and Scales hopped on top of Bill, but it wasn't no use. The determined young man was still able to power himself up to his feet and let loose with a primal scream. Luckily for them, Ike's wife was able to swoop in and grab his rifle as Bill thrashed about like a wild man, with Rogers and Scales just holding on for dear life. Finally, they managed to slip a pair of handcuffs on him. And if only for a moment, the adolescent terror was subdued. At first, Cherokee offered them money if they'd let him go, and when that tactic failed, he just began cursing both of them up and down, calling them everything but children of God. And damned if he didn't continue to struggle. So much so that on the wagon ride into town, he actually broke his damn handcuffs and made a mad rush for Scales' rifle, causing Clint to fall backwards out of the wagon as Ike held Bill at bay with his scattergun. Finally, they arrived after what I assume was an extremely tense journey and delivered the notorious Cherokee Bill over to deputies Smith and Lawson. Once there in town, the outlaw was credited with telling a newspaper reporter, I wouldn't be here now if it had not been for men who claimed to be my friends. You boys didn't do me right. Sure didn't. I am 19 years old and I was born and raised in the Cherokee Nation. I've been on scout for several years and was never caught before. I would not have been caught this time if I'd have listened to the girl. 
She told me I'd better not stay at the house, but I thought I could whip both of them if I got a show. But they knocked me down with a club instead of going after guns. And then when asked if he ever saw any of the marshals who were after him, Bill responded, Nah, I never saw any of them except when smoke was coming out my gun. If they'll just put me on the prairie, I can whip any ten deputy marshals in the territory. So as you can see, Cherokee Bill was certainly not a happy camper, and he was still brimming with defiance. By the way, if you've ever seen that famous picture of him standing amongst a throng of men with a cocky smile on his face and his hands in his pockets, that photo was snapped right after his capture, either there in Nevada or over in Wagoner on their way to Fort Smith. The guy standing off to the side to Bill's left with the number one marked on his hat is Ike Rogers. He would have been standing closer, but Cherokee refused to have his picture taken with him. Instead, throwing his arm around Deputy Marshal Dick Crittenton and saying, Here's someone that stood up and fought me like a man. Referencing that time that Dick and the posse came gunning for him over at Effie's house when he and the cooks were trying to collect that money. The photographer snapped the picture and then Bill made a go for Deputy Crittenton's holstered pistol. Luckily, the guard stopped him before he got a good grip and then they secured his mischievous little ass in shackles and chains and plopped him on a train bound for Fort Smith. Cherokee Bill would never again experience life as a free man. Of course, that didn't mean he was done killing. Not by a long shot. Bill was captured on January 31st, 1895, and he still had over a year to live. A year that would see the young bandit stand trial before the notorious hanging Judge Parker. More than once, and with at least two of his guilty verdicts being appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. And then you got the gunfight over at the jailhouse. The fateful encounter between Ike Rogers and Bill's younger brother Clarence. And the curse of the number 13. Oh yeah, that's right. Still plenty more to talk about when it comes to old Cherokee Bill. Unfortunately, you're just going to have to wait till next week to hear the rest of the story. And yeah, I promise to discuss the harder they fall next week as well. By the way, for research on Cherokee Bill, I leaned heavily on the book Cherokee Bill, Black Cowboy, Indian Outlaw by R.T. Burton. Highly recommend this book if you're interested in learning more about Cherokee Bill. You can find a link to it in the show notes. Very well researched. This is the first book I've ever read by Mr. Burton, but it appears he has more works regarding the Old West, including Black, Buckskin, and Blue, African-American Scouts and Soldiers on the Western Frontier, Black Gun, Silver Star, The Life and Legend of Frontier Marshal Bass Reeves. I'll definitely be picking that one up. So yeah, a lot of good stuff. Link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you, thank you, thank you for your continued support. I am truly amazed and humbled at the messages I receive on a daily basis. Seriously, thank you. I would not continue to do this podcast if it wasn't for you. It absolutely blows my mind. Remember, you can always reach me at josh at wildwestextra.com. Feel free to say hello. And hey, do me a favor, huh? Sign up for my 100% free newsletter, wildwestjosh.substack.com, or just head on over to wildwestextra.com and hit that tab up top that says newsletter. Speaking of which, over the weekend, I sent out a short survey to all the subscribers, and I also posted a link on YouTube. If you tried to take the survey and you were unable to, or it said that you needed to request permission, that's my bad. I do not know how to fix this. Long story short, I used a Google form to create a survey, just as a way of seeing if there was any areas of improvement I needed to tackle as far as this podcast goes, and also as a means to better understand and get to know you, the listener. And about half of the people, for whatever reason, were unable to gain access to the survey. If you were one of the ones who were able to get in there and fill it out, thank you. Got a lot of great feedback. And if you tried but it wouldn't let you, thank you as well. 
I appreciate the effort. It's not your fault. It's mine. Daddy is not the most technical person in the world. So next time I bother y'all with a survey, I guarantee it'll be conducted in a more professional manner. All right. That's about all I got for this week. Cherokee Bill Part 2 coming at you bright and early next Wednesday morning. Till then, try not to kill your brother-in-law. Don't go robbing no train stations. And please, for the love of God, if you see some poor bastard hanging up wallpaper, don't shoot him. Adios. with your Tahlequah.